This morning's passage is found in Genesis 39. We are continuing our series on the life of Joseph. This will be our third uh, series, our third sermon in the series. And um, we were the first two sermons were out of chapter 37. You may remember Joseph is uh, one of Jacob's 12 sons. He's Jacob's favorite son. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, is tricked into marrying Leah. They have a whole passel of kids. And then Rachel finally brings forth Joseph. And that's who uh, Jacob pours all of his favor on. So when we meet Joseph in chapter 37, he's um, 17. He's already working in the fields. And he, remember, he brings this report uh, of his brothers and really breaks away from this kind of power structure of following the brothers and shows Jacob that he is uh, devoted to Jacob and to the God of Jacob. Uh, he also has these dreams that reveal that one day, someday, uh, somehow the, the brothers and the family will somehow bow to him or there's some interesting situation going on in these dreams. He explains that to the brothers and they hate him. And so 37 is the story, chapter 37 of him kidnapping him and selling him into slavery. And at the very end of chapter 37, you may recall, J Jacob is in grief. He has this garment that was the technicolored robe, and it now has blood on it. In his mind, Joseph is dead. He's weeping. He's basically saying, until I go to my grave, I'll be in mourning. But the last line of 37 says this. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And that's where we're going to begin this morning with this story of now Joseph coming into the house of Potiphar. This is probably the most famous story from the Joseph account. Uh, this is the one where Hollywood would, would certainly spend a lot of their time and energy if making this movie. So uh, one, one Hebrew scholar says it's the most symmetrical of really all the chapters, not only in Genesis but in, in the Pentateuch, it begins with Joseph at a high point, it ends with Joseph at a high point. But in between is this crazy story with Potiphar's wife. So let's read it together, starting in 39, verse 1. And there are 23 verses in total. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to the master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. 
He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He has heard that I lifted up my, excuse me, he came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. When the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison, whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it successful. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are amazed at this story. We are amazed that Joseph would be so faithful through such trials. And Lord, we know that Joseph indeed is a picture, Jesus, of you and your life and what you have given us. Though we aspire to act like Joseph, we know ultimately you are the one who acted as Joseph uh, did here, even better and more perfectly for our sake. So now we pray that as your sons and daughters, as those who are in union to God and you, Christ, that your spirit would free us to live out in the same way in the midst of our difficult and challenging lives. Amen. I, uh, an, I was studying this, and I, I was remembering an image of, I think it was a, a sculpture that I've personally seen, but my memory's not amazing, so maybe I just saw this on the internet. I'm sure some of you have seen something like this, but it's one of those sculptures where I'm, I'm picturing like the Omniplex in Oklahoma City, which has a different name now. And you go up and it's like this kind of roped off area and it's just a pile of stuff that looks discarded. Patio chairs, old tape recorders, just a pile of that kind of stuff. And you're looking at it and it's discarded, but you're supposed to walk to a new vantage point. And again, you can find these on the internet, so maybe I'm just making this up that I was there in person. But I feel like I was there. And you back up to a certain vantage point, and as you do, you notice it becomes a face, like an like a actual, like Abraham Lincoln or somebody. Have you, has anyone seen one of these? Okay. 
Well, the other way, and when I looked it up on the internet, is you walk up and what you see is this really amazing sculpture of a face, and it's only when you walk closer that you begin to notice it's this debris field of things that have been discarded. And when I read the Joseph story, what, what strikes me is that for, jo- for us, we're often looking at the stuff of our lives like, like that, like up close. Like, here's this chair. What am I going to do with this chair and this toy? But Joseph somehow is able to see the picture from the right perspective. Because Joseph, as we see in our passage, um, dwells with God and God dwells with Joseph. And remember, Joseph has these dreams. He knows his future. He knows his story. It's been set. And so as Christians, what sometimes might look like amazing, like, wow, Joseph has all that. We have even more. I mean, Hebrews tells us we have access into the Holy of Holies because of the Holy Spirit. We are adopted in Christ, and we now have the ability not only to know those dreams in part, but to know their full fulfillment in Christ. So our challenge as Christians is to not live every day looking at the junk of our lives, but to constantly go back through prayer and meditation and worship and seeing the larger picture and knowing what the true storyline is for our lives. Now, if we do that, and as we do that, we'll see two things. The gospel will free us to do two things we see in this passage. One, we'll begin to say yes in situations where everything else tells us to say no. Right? The, the world, the flesh, and the devil would say to Joseph, now that you're in slavery, just shut it down. You're done. This is, this is your lot. But Joseph says yes while he's in slavery, and we can too. So the recap is that Joseph is taken out of this pit with his brothers from Dothan, dragged out, his coat is gone. He's, who knows how they transport him to Egypt, which is quite a bit of a journey. And when he gets to Egypt, he's put in some form of a slave-selling mechanism. I don't know what kind of connections they have. And he ends up purchased by a man named Potiphar, And he's probably coming into Potiphar. Maybe he comes in with some skill sets. Maybe Potiphar puts him at a higher position. We don't know. But nonetheless, he is a slave. And he is in this awful situation. And yet right there in verse 2, Moses tells us this in 39 verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And I have probably always read that like, wow. Like Joseph had this supernatural thing. And as I've been studying it and as we think about it in the context of all of Scripture, I would like to urge us to recognize one thing. I believe Joseph is gifted. I believe the Lord did do supernatural things in his life. But I believe he can do that through us because really I think Joseph approached his life the way a Christian would approach, anybody would approach their lives in Christ as opposed to the way most people would approach them in those circumstances. What do I mean? Well, uh, in Ephesians 6, 5, after Paul has gone through explaining, I mean, it's glorious unpacking of the gospel and all the ramifications of being in Christ, he says this, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Wow. 
I, I've always thought of that verse when I don't want to do something. Because I'm thinking to myself, like, whatever, I'm in, whatever situation I'm in, it's not as bad as a bondservant. And yet Paul has the audacity to speak to people in slavery and say, hey, while you're in this situation, serve the master as if you're serving Christ. Now, why would he say that? And it's very tempting for all of our flesh and the enemy to say, how oppressive, how awful, how horrible that would be. And yet the presence of the Lord convinces Joseph that actually anything less than your true design crushes you. Anytime you and I don't act out our full self, maybe we're trying to get someone back, maybe we're mad about the role we're playing or the lot of what we're in, it's actually hurting us. It's crushing us. There's a, there's a quote attributed to Martin Luther that I have found out might not actually be him, but it's okay because it's a great quote. And he says, if I found out the world was coming to pieces tomorrow, I would plant the apple tree today. Now, why would that quote be so popular? Because most of us, what would we do? Forget it. God's coming back tomorrow or however you want to say it. Maybe it's the, 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 the launch codes are going off. It's all going down. I'm not doing anything. And I think Luther's trying to, what's, that quote's trying to get across is you and I are designed to flourish where we are. We actually, um, in that midst, are being our truest selves. And it brings glory to God. But it brings glory to us. It's like it, it blesses everyone around us. And I think so often most of us don't see our lives that way. And so Paul is teaching in Ephesians 6 and Joseph's living out in Genesis 39 this image that when we grasp the freedom we have in Christ, we can begin to live undividedly focused in what we're doing. I don't know that I have a, a I was thinking about some illustrations, but the, for me, one of my favorite illustrations would be a child at play. We have a video that's made its rounds around our family of our children at play. And at one point, our sons were going to build a swimming pool. And they were doing this on dirt, like hard-packed dirt with a plastic uh, sledgehammer. And they were their age. It was like last week. <laughs> so... Wilson, we've got some work to do here. Um, no, they were very little. We were in seminary. But if you watch the video, because we obviously thought it was hilarious, what are you all doing? It was actually, this, at this point, it's Coleman, and he's just hammering ch -ch, this dirt pile, and nothing's happening. But the look of focus, the look of sincerity, the look of, like, intentionality was beautiful. The best part of the video is it smacks him in the head, and he just kind of like, oh. And guess what happens next? Boom. <laughs> just undivided attention. Where did it go? Just kidding. <laughs> when we are children, there's something about our ability to go, this is the mission. This is what I'm doing. We're not thinking, who's making supper? Is this beneath me? Am I going to be satisfied? It's just, this is what's in front of me. And I think what Paul's getting at and what Joseph sees is not, hey, God is so serious, you better obey him even in these circumstances. It's this. There is freedom. There is freedom in knowing your story has already been set. Joseph doesn't know how these dreams will be fulfilled one day, someday. All he knows is that right now he's going to dig that hole. Or right now he's going he's to add the numbers up in that ledger. He's going to help his master not overspend here. Whatever he's doing... 
He's doing it with all of his heart, which is exactly what Paul goes on to say. Do it for the God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And I just think this is super important for our time because in America, the majority of the ways we approach our lives and our careers is this. What's the easiest thing I can do to be happy? What's the job I can get and not have a lot of responsibility and enjoy my hobbies and my weekends and still appear to be successful? Like that's one of our number one idols. Rarely do I meet anyone, including my own upbringing as I'm processing what I want to do, that would say, I just want to take the gifting that I can tell God's given me and bless people with that. And yet, that's what we're called to do as Christians. What is your calling? Where is your lot? Like, where do you find yourself? Now, understand, that doesn't mean Joseph has to stay at this rung. He's clearly going to use his gifting, and he gets promoted. We'll see that in a second. But nonetheless, the point is, his motive is to bring glory to God and to utilize his gifts in that calling. What are you made to do? You see, I think the supernatural aspect is this. Joseph has a set of gifts. We all do. We all have a calling, every one of us. And when you are in the midst of using your gifts in that calling for the Lord, you will flourish. You will have success. That doesn't mean you'll have the success in the world's eyes, but what you're doing will work. And it will bless people, and people will notice that. Now, if you want to know what this looks like in a very practical way, what kind of energy, what kind of focus, what kind of work do you put towards your idols? I love college game day in, in Stillwater because I'm an OSU fan, so I'm kind of watching the natives get excited. Sorry, you all hate me. We all, we've talked about this for years. I get kind of excited too, but then I don't have very many times where I have tickets. So there's this excitement. One of our favorite things to do is to go to dinner right when the game starts because no one's out. It's perfect. But I see these trailers come into town, and I'm thinking, like, the amount of energy and focus and drive that that takes. And let me say, I'm not critiquing it. Like, that's really awesome. A part of me wishes, I've told him I'd love to get, like, a travel trailer. And, but here's the point. Just imagine you're the person, and maybe you are, that puts that kind of energy into getting to your football game or getting into your hobby. Or, or another favorite is, like, I have zero time. I'm so busy, although I binge-watched the entire season of blah, blah, blah last week. You know, like... We all do this. I'm guilty. And I'm not critiquing those things right now. That you are certainly free if the Holy Spirit wants to critique your idols to go that direction. What I'm saying is that's what it feels like when you're engaged. And I'm asking that that we would begin to pay attention to what Jesus does when he frees us and, and unites us to God through his work. Is we are now free to feel those ways in what we're called to do. And the biggest lie Satan has ever thrown out there, not the biggest, one of the biggest, is like work is bad, work is evil, don't do it, get, get off, you know, clock out as fast as you can, go have fun. And it's like, wait, you are built as a human made in the image of God to flourish where you are. And, and then crazy, amazing, glorious reality is this is the very reason Joseph ends up to the place where those dreams have him going because of his work. It would have never happened had he not arrived at Potiphar's house and poured his entire being into what he was doing. He could have easily 
I, I think all of us would have given him a pass had he simply just been like, look, I'm, going, I'm shutting it down. So do you shut it down? So the gospel frees you to say yes when the flesh wants you to say no. But the gospel also encourages you and forces you to say no when our flesh wants to say yes. The next point in this passage, probably the one that's the most famous, is that now that he's used his gifts, he's risen into power, he's become um, promoted into the literal house of Potiphar. He apparently has um, free reign over everything in the house except the one area Potiphar holds back. Is it his wife? No. I'll talk about that in a second. It's he wants final veto power on what's for dinner. Like that's his thing. Like look, I want to tell you if it's going to be chicken or steak or shrimp. Other than that, it's all yours. Except when he's doing this work, his wife finds Joseph handsome in form and appearance. Exact language of how Jacob saw Rachel. Um, Not in the English but in the Hebrew. And so she casts her eyes on Joseph and says, two Hebrew words, three in the English, lie with me. Now, what's interesting is that Joseph goes into a 50 Hebrew word response. Hebrew scholars are saying that in addition to the, to, to the content of the response, just that juxtaposition shows the, the stark contrast between the two and what's happening. Um, I will tell you, there's two threads of thought on what's going on here. A lot of pastors are, are drawn to the, to the idea that this is sexual temptation for Joseph. And it could be. I have a sense that that's a, a male pastor reading the situation and saying that's what I would struggle with. Because as I read the text, I want to press us to lean a little bit differently from that. I don't think it's so much a sexual temptation for Joseph as it's a temptation for a deeper idol for him, and that's an idol of power. Because when Potiphar's wife says, lie with me in that culture, you don't get to say no. It's a lot more similar to a hashtag me too situation where here's Joseph finally in this position. Things are finally working. He can see how the dreams are going to be fulfilled. It's all going well. And now this woman this, who has a position essentially to where she can tell him what to do, he now has to say no. I can't do that. And he's going to risk losing everything. But yet the gospel empowers him to say no. Listen to his answer. He refused and said, no, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. It's possible that Potiphar said that. Imagine that. Hey, everything is completely yours. There's the fridge. There's the pool. There's the, my wife's off limits. Like, but most people don't talk like that. And quite frankly, in Egypt, that probably wasn't what scholars would say even true. In fact, there are some that would say there's a chance Potiphar is a eunuch. There's an entire, there's a whole lot going on. And I think Joseph is inserting his, his belief and trust in the ways of God and says, listen, it's wickedness against God. That's the point. So if Potiphar had said this is okay, Joseph wouldn't have been fine with it. Joseph doesn't do this wickedness because it's wickedness against God. 
So here's Joseph now being torn because to keep this position, he needs to do something, and yet he says no. You're welcome if you want in your interpretation to think otherwise, but I'm going to go with a power play. You know, the gospel frees us, even though it can put us in danger to say no to these things. So what happens next? Well, uh, it's interesting. In verse 10, she asks him daily for this proposition. It's a constant daily grind. Eventually, she sets up, it looks like to me, a setup where now it's just the two of them. She makes it physical, takes his cloak or his garment, thinking she's going to pull him near, and he slips out of the garment. Uh, there is a question, uh, you know, what kind of garment was it? Most would say he wasn't running completely in the nude when he left. But he certainly left enough behind that it was suspicious. Like, why is that garment here? So, again, use your imaginations or don't. But nonetheless, what he left behind was certainly not something you would leave behind. More than likely, it was an important outer garment that you just wouldn't leave behind. Um, and that's an interesting thing. And what does she do next? She, realizing that he just ran off and who knows what he's going to say, she seems to need to create a false narrative. So she goes out, gathers the help, brings them in and says, hey, um, this is the way, excuse me, back up verse. She, in verse 14, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Do you hear what she does? He, my husband, you know, roll your eyes, that guy, brought in a Hebrew to laugh at me, to laugh at us, to make fun of us. Uh, depending on how you play that word out, it's either to uh, sexually attack her or it's to make light of her through this, this, pro this proposed sinful act. And then she does the same thing with her husband. He finally shows up and she leaves the garment by her side and says to him, the Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came into me to laugh at me. So in two stories, she's making it out to be the husband's fault. And so when Potiphar takes his action, listen to what happens in verse 19. As soon as the master heard the words of his wife, he, and here are the words, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Almost to every uh, commentator, Potiphar doesn't believe her. If he believed her, Joseph is dead. This is like execution on the spot stuff. This is not like I got to go to a trial. But rather Potiphar takes Joseph and puts him in the prison of the Pharaoh, which Potiphar apparently has some jurisdiction over. And quite frankly, he listen, he's going to be in there with the king's prisoners, which we'll find out next week are like a cupbearer and a baker. This is like white collar, you know, halfway house stuff. The gospel frees us to say no to both sexual temptations, but to these power plays that come at us. But also the gospel frees us to say no to vengeance when someone talks against us, which is exactly what she's doing. We once again don't hear Joseph defending himself. What do we do with this? Well, I guess my question is, how do we live like Joseph? 
do we do it? Um, if we are, um, if you're wanting to, by the way, track with some of the sexual brokenness in your own lives, let me just say, we didn't cover it, but chapter 38 is a story of Judah doing horrific sexual things to Tamar. And from their lineage comes Jesus, the Lion of Judah, whom we've sung about. So please hear me if you are struggling with sexual brokenness, uh, which we all do to some degree in this fallen world. This story is not saying if you didn't run like Joseph, then you're less. What it's showing is here's Judah, here's Tamar, let me show you Joseph. And one day, someday, the true Joseph, Jesus, comes. And scholars would compare the temptations that he faced in this story of succumbing to the temptation with Potiphar's wife and then probably the longing to defend himself to Jesus' temptation in the desert before his ministry. And the, and the temptation is one of power. It's one of saying, are you going to stand up for yourself? Are you going to stick your stake in the ground or are you going to trust God? And here's my, what I'm begging us to think about for a minute. Can we trust the story that we're in? Can we trust that Jesus is on his throne? Can we trust him? Or do we need to, like that opening illustration, start picking up all the pieces that we don't understand and, and sort of beginning to try to restructure our lives? Or can we see our story the way it's told from heaven? In one of my favorite passages, which I've preached on, if you're new here, you haven't heard it, but I talk about it every fourth sermon, and this will be what we conclude with, is John 13, where Jesus is letting his disciples understand the nature of his ministry and what's coming in the next few moments, in day or two or three. And in doing that, they've all come into this room, and they're wearing their best clothes they're celebrating the Passover with the king who came in on a colt. Everyone's singing Hosanna. They are excited. They are clean. And they are ready. And as they come into the room, they no doubt can smell and, and see the meal. And, they're, and they're, they, other accounts talk about two of the disciples asking to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. Everyone's thinking about this future kingdom that's coming. And there's a jar of water and a towel. And certainly they've begun to pay attention to the fact that nobody's there to clean them or to do anything with it. And then as the meal begins and as the time comes for the cleaning of the feet, rather than the normal uh, servant or slave, it's Jesus. And what does he do? He disrobes. He takes off his outer garment. Right? And in our passage, there's no doubt that Joseph's garment is at play. He loses his technicolor coat. He now has this garment of Potiphar's house, which is authority. That's been taken from him. And in our passage in John 13, Jesus' garment is laid down so that Jesus can wash their feet. And when he is done, he says, do you know why I have done this? I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to wash one another's feet. What did Jesus do to wash their feet? He faced humiliation. My fear about my heart is that I have lived so comfortably so long that the moment pressure shows up, the moment any kind of issues in our culture, in my own heart, uh, spiritual issues show up, 
the question before me is, am I going to follow Christ? Am I going to trust the gospel or am I going to go my own way? And Jesus has left us this story as the perfect Joseph saying, I am with you. He came from heaven to earth to not only cleanse your feet but to die for your sins. But here's the deal. If that's true, it will only be something you, you grasp this side of heaven in challenge, in difficulty. That's why we sing this, this John Newton song, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. We all believe we get the gospel when things are going amazing. What are we like when things don't go amazing? That's a better test of whether we believe the gospel. And it's in those moments where we need to, like Joseph spent seven years probably in Potiphar's house doing menial, horrible tasks, longing for home, wondering what his dreams mean, wondering what the future held, and yet he was faithful because God was with him. And we have now a better image of that picture. That sculpture is perfectly, as you back up and see it, it's Jesus. It's not Abraham Lincoln. It's Jesus and we now know the full story. Is it your story? Is Jesus talking to you and I when he says, let me tell you why I did this, that we would wash one another's feet. If that is not your story, I beg you to make it your story. That the spirit would open your eyes and you would cry out, Lord Jesus, you are my savior. I want to give my life to you. I want to walk with you. If it is your story and you're struggling with saying instead of yes to our menial task, you're struggling with saying no and being defiant. Or when temptations are coming your way, you're saying yes to them instead of no to them. Might this be the morning the gospel opens your heart to say time out. Let me reconnect. Let me rethink what I believe. Let me come back to Jesus and beg him not only for forgiveness but renewed affections. That I can actually engage this life, this rubbish pile before me. For the glory of God, seeing beauty come out of it. I think those are our options. I don't think any of us um, are living out a, just the easiest life. To be in this world is hard. Will you draw near to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we praise you that we have a garment that you will never take away. Lord, that the world cannot strip us from or from us. And that is the robe of your righteousness. But, Lord, we are so tempted to hide it. We're so tempted to forget, to go out without it on. Maybe we're embarrassed. For many, Lord, maybe we've just pretended a long time. And yet when hardship comes, when trials arise, when temptations flood, Holy Spirit, will you teach us to cry out to you, to allow you to wash our feet? To come close. Lord, can we join in with Joseph and really behind Joseph, knowing that there is a story that has started and we are in the midst of. That we know that one day, someday, we will be with you in glory. Help us to orient our lives now or see our lives now oriented along those lines by your sovereign hand that we would trust you at every step of the way. Amen.